Welcome to our podcast, Heart Failure Morning Commute, preventing heart failure in high-risk patients with type 2 diabetes. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with App Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by independent educational grants from Boehringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Eli Lilly and & Company, and from Merck Sharp & Dome Corporation. In this episode, Dr. Deepak Bhatt and Dr. Javed Butler focus on the patient with diabetes and the risk of developing heart failure. While medication may be needed, they emphasize the importance of prevention through lifestyle and diet. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash heartfailure3. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Bott is Executive Director of Interventional Cardiovascular Programs, Brigham and Women's Hospital Heart and Vascular Center, and a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, Boston. Dr. Butler is professor of medicine in the Department of Medicine at the University of Mississippi, Jackson. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Bott will begin our discussion. David, thank you for joining me again for this podcast, where we will look at the patient with type 2 diabetes and other cardiovascular risk factors, including, importantly, type 2 diabetes. So maybe we can start off with the role of type 2 diabetes as just being a risk factor for developing heart failure. You know, I'll say in a lot of the initial cardiovascular outcome trials that we were doing, we were very focused on ischemic events, in particular myocardial infarction. But in doing those trials, we noticed, hey, there's a lot of heart failure going on in these trials. And, and people that lived in the heart failure space, such as yourself, probably said, well, duh, that's that's sort of uh, really known. But, but I don't think it was so appreciated in the uh, initial set of trials until we looked at the event rates and realized, oh, yeah, there is a lot of heart failure in this population. What are your thoughts about type 2 diabetes as a risk factor for developing heart failure, either with reduced or preserved ejection fraction or, or both? Yeah, you know, so th this is a really important question. And boy, just sort of in my, you know, career over the past uh, decade or two, our, our thought process has really evolved. So uh, if you think about prevention of heart failure, uh, there was no focus of, uh, uh, on prevention of heart failure because heart failure was considered as a, uh, you know, sequelae of uh, coronary artery disease. And, and, and absolutely coronary artery disease uh, is perhaps after hypertension, the most important risk factor for developing uh, heart failure. Uh, the issue is that there is a sizable minority of patients. Uh, and by sizable minority, I mean like 40, 45%, like, you know, almost 50, 50, uh, that develop heart failure uh, that do not have manifest uh, coronary artery disease. Now, I don't know whether they have subclinical coronary disease or not because we don't cath everybody, but at least they don't have angina. They don't have history of myocardial infarction. We don't have any clinical evidence of uh, coronary artery disease. Moreover, they don't have any manifest uh, other vascular disease either, stroke, history of stroke or TIA or peripheral vascular disease. Now, it turns out that in patients with diabetes, that proportion is even higher. So, so, so there is some link between diabetes and heart failure. Patients with diabetes are at a higher risk of developing heart failure. Patients with heart failure are at a higher risk of developing diabetes. And if you have both of them together, your prognosis is much worse than to have one disease or, or another. So now the question is, why is that? So our traditional thought process was, 
that type 2 diabetes lead to this thing called diabetic cardiomyopathy and that you have this you know, lipid-laden myocytes in the heart and all the fat and, 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 and that sort of uh, a thought process. And, and that may be true in a, in a small you know, group of patients, uh, but, but it turns out that that's really not the predominant way uh, you develop uh, heart failure in patients with diabetes. Uh, so so what, what is going on? Now, what's very interesting is that we dichotomize these glycemic abnormalities into diabetes or no diabetes, and about 40, 45, maybe in some studies, 50% of the patients with heart failure have diabetes. But what we forget is that about 30, 35% of the patients with heart failure have prediabetes. In other words, some degree of glycemic abnormality and insulin resistance is present in over 80% of patients with heart failure. So what that tells me is that rather than diabetes causing heart failure or heart failure causing diabetes, there is a milieu in the body with insulin resistance, inflammation, oxidative stress that puts the patients at risk for both. And we may see in our clinical uh, journey of the patient, a person present with type 2 diabetes or present with heart failure, but we can be pretty certain that, that they are well on their way of developing the other disease. So that's sort of the, 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 you know, the big view of how our thought process has evolved uh, in this manner. I think that's a really elegant explanation of those linkages between diabetes and heart failure. So um, along those lines, then, we uh, have in prior podcast episodes, and in this one and future ones, we'll talk quite a bit about pharmacotherapy. But what then is the role of lifestyle and diet? Yeah, so, you know, uh, from a population attributable risk perspective, the number one uh, risk factor for, for heart failure uh, is by far hypertension. And, and if you look at the global burden, hypertension will stand out number one. Uh, the question is, you know, how do you attribute uh, things uh, as risk factors? So uh, uh, hypertension is proximally list, uh, linked to development of heart failure of, you know, LV remodeling, left ventricular hypertrophy, diastolic dysfunction. Uh, but what causes hypertension? Well, you know, diet and lifestyle is associated with uh, hypertension. Uh, you have a high salt diet, uh, you may have salt avidity, so maybe you should be eating even less uh, than perhaps uh, what may be generally acceptable, uh, and uh, lack of exercise and physical activity. Uh, so all of these things then lead to sort of obesity. Uh, but remember, you know, sometimes we focus a little bit too on visible obesity, which is sort of, you know, adipose tissue uh, around the belly. Uh, but there are sort of differences in different races and ethnicities in terms of where the fat is distributed. And even if your BMI is not too high, you may still have a, a lot of uh, uh, subcutaneous fat and uh, organ fat on the heart, on the kidneys, uh, with a relatively less uh, a lean mass. Uh, so all of these things are related to lifestyle. Uh, so there is a lot of data that uh, low-salt diet and uh, uh, eating uh, uh, fruits and vegetables, uh, things with uh, higher potassium and exercise. And by exercise, again, I don't mean that, that you're in the gym, you know, uh, from five in the morning till seven in the morning, five days, seven days a week. I mean, we're talking about even just get your 10,000 steps, you know, walk around, just be active. Don't park closest to where you have to enter, just park a little bit further away. Uh, and, and if you possibly can, and if you're in a shape to do 30 minutes of exercise four or five times a, a week, uh, uh, that's great. But obviously, it's graded, and the, the more you do, the more the shape you get in, the, the lower the risk. Now, as cliche as it may sound, 
really the best treatment of heart failure is prevention of heart failure because the prognosis gets so bad and you're then trying to sort of reverse the course that if you can prevent it, uh, that's the that's the best uh, chance. And, and, and this is not a low chance of risk. I mean, there was a very good paper from Framingham that showed that adult Americans age 40, you have a one in five lifetime chance of developing heart failure, 20%. So, I mean, this is a pretty sizable risk. So I would say lifestyle and low salt diet, low fat diet, maintaining your body weight and keeping active can substantially reduce the risk. And there is no time in life where it is too late to start this. If you did not do that in your 20s or your 30s, or and now you're in your 40s and 50s, no problem, start today. If you cannot do everything perfect today, no problem, start somewhere, incrementally built it, it will really pay in, 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 uh, in spades. And my last comment is because all of these pathophysiologies are linked, while you may be preventing heart failure, you're actually preventing stroke, you're preventing CKD, you're preventing cancer because all of these things are linked as well. Yeah, those are really great points. I guess I might even throw in atrial fibrillation is the other thing, too, that for many years we just thought, well, you know, it's random or you get older and you're just at risk for it. Some people are saying maybe there are genetic influences, which there can be. But it turns out that AFib is also modified by lifestyle measures, really many of the same measures you mentioned in terms of regular physical activity, trying to prevent gaining weight and obesity. These sorts of things can have quite an impact in preventing first atrial fibrillation or in people that have atrial fibrillation, helping provide better control of that atrial fibrillation symptomatically and otherwise. And you know, along those lines, a lot of what you said there for heart failure prevention, does that also apply for people with heart failure? Uh, that is, reducing salt intake reduces the risk of high blood pressure, of course, that in turn reduces the risk of heart failure. But what about someone with heart failure? Uh, is it uh, an evidence-based strategy for them to adopt a really strict salt restriction? Yeah, so that is a very difficult question because we really don't have large uh, clinical trials uh, with the data uh, to guide us. Uh, remember that your physiology changes once you do develop heart failure as opposed to when you don't have uh, heart failure. Uh, so patients who are on diuretic therapy, and then if you have volume depletion and lower salt intake, uh, you may uh, uh, actually end up activating the neurohormonal system and activating the RAS system, and you may actually worsen heart failure prognosis. Uh, so, so there's a lot of controversy around it. So I can give you my opinion. First, the controversy about low-salt diet in those with heart failure doesn't mean high salt is good. So first, sometimes people just expect the, the, the reciprocal to be the truth. So I'm not saying that high salt is good in heart failure. High salt is absolutely not good in heart failure and it's bad in heart failure. The question is, do you hang around sort of the 2300 milligram recommendation, which is in general, or do you really try to restrict salt a lot? I would think that probably in HEF-PEF, restricting salt is a good idea, but in HEF-REF, where neurohormonal activation is, is, is a real issue, uh, probably uh, maintaining uh, a, a sort of a balanced diet and not do too high a salt restriction is probably the a way to go unless and until um, you are really congested and, and difficult to, to decongest. And in that case, uh, limiting salt uh, would, be, would be a good idea. Uh, so having said that, uh, in the next uh, few weeks, uh, there's a large uh, randomized controlled trial on salt reduction from uh, our Canadian colleagues, which will be presented at ACC. 
so maybe you and I can talk about it again uh, uh, in a few weeks. Yeah, no, it's just amazing to me how there's just so much new information in the world of heart failure, so many trials that are coming, not just for medical therapy, but for devices and uh, even for lifestyle intervention. A truly a remarkable time to be in heart failure, whether we're talking about uh, primary prevention of heart failure or treatment of people that already have heart failure. Right, one thing I want to raise is any potential role, if you think there is, of what used to be called bariatric surgery, now sometimes it's called metabolic surgery, where uh, people who are obese or in some cases even overweight with multiple cardiovascular comorbidities uh, might undergo uh, metabolic or bariatric surgery. Uh, is there any role potentially of this for heart failure, either prevention of heart failure or I suppose even treatment of it? Yeah, so uh, I mean, the, 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 the data are sort of overwhelmingly remarkable uh, how your risk for heart failure goes down with bariatric surgery. Now, obviously, uh, we don't have randomized controlled trials. And I think in this day and age, with such a strong data with GLP-1 receptor agonist for weight loss, perhaps one can actually contemplate a randomized controlled trial of bariatric surgery versus uh, medical therapy and its impact on heart failure. But, but we are not there yet. But right now, people who do not have heart failure, so you know, just for our, our friends and colleagues who are listening to this podcast who don't necessarily think about prevention all the time, it's sort of a four-stage process, right? So you have the primordial prevention, which is uh, to prevent the, the, the risk factors. Uh, you have primary prevention, where you have the risk factors, but you're preventing the disease. You have secondary prevention, where you have now developed the disease, but you're preventing uh, consequences of the disease. And then you have tertiary prevention when you're preventing sort of uh, mortality and, and, and hospitalization and uh, advanced therapy. So that's sort of the spectrum. So for bariatric surgery, if you look at the primary prevention, so people who don't have heart failure but are severely obese and they undergo bariatric surgery, I mean, your risk of diabetes uh, goes down. If you are diabetic, your need for insulin and diabetic therapies uh, go down. Uh, there is significant favorable impact on left ventricular structure and function and diastology and LVH and all those things. Uh, but but importantly, uh, the risk of development of heart failure goes down, you know, almost by 40-50% relative risk reduction. Uh, so, uh, uh, again, this is something that one should not take lightly. Uh, this is a lifelong sort of a surgical procedure. You're committing to it. Uh, on the other hand, if you really meet the criteria and you have tried everything else, uh, then delaying it and, and being afraid of bariatric surgery and not uh, pursuing it is, is, is really not, not, not a good idea. Now, what about the secondary prevention? If you already have heart failure um, and you uh, have uh, get bariatric surgery, do, do, you, uh, do things get better? Well, I, I don't know. I suspect that a lot of patients with bariatric surgery uh, actually have undiagnosed HFPEF and they were never diagnosed because people don't differentiate between uh, uh, HFPEF-related shortness of breath or severe obesity-related shortness of breath, and I think that does get better. Uh, I can tell you that we have a lot of anecdotal experience that HFREF patients who are high risk for surgery and surgeons sometimes shy away, when they undergo the surgery, uh, they actually end up doing really uh, well, uh, but uh, I don't have a randomized control data for that respect. Really uh, fascinating piece of evolving data, I think, largely observational data with respect to bariatric and metabolic surgery and, and effects on heart failure, but nonetheless, uh, I think quite believable. 
and randomized trial data at this point showing the role of, of bariatric surgery in uh, reducing diabetes, that is, in attaining glycemic control. In fact, in the Stampede trial, we'd even shown cure of diabetes, that is, full resolution, uh, meeting the definition of that uh, at a much higher rate with uh, bariatric surgery uh, in, in various forms, sleeve gastrectomy, a classic Roux-en-Y uh, surgery versus best medical therapy. Uh, as well, the Gateway trial had shown a significant benefit on blood pressure control uh, with uh, metabolic surgery. So the benefit on risk factors has been proven in randomized clinical trials. And of course, it would take a very large long-term trial to show benefits on hard outcomes like the development of heart failure or heart failure hospitalizations. But, uh, but I do think the uh, uh, randomized data for risk factors and observational data for clinical events is, is really quite consistent and uh, quite believable. So, you know, just uh, to flesh out things a little bit more, uh, we talked about uh, ways of uh, addressing risk factors, salt in the diet, more exercise, perhaps uh, procedural care. Uh, what about medical therapies to prevent heart failure from developing in the first place? Uh, any thoughts there about medical therapies that might be useful? Certainly anti-ischemic therapies, uh, you know, things that prevent myocardial infarction uh, would be expected to reduce the risk of heart failure. And uh, certainly some of the SGLT2 inhibitor trials have shown, even in patients without heart failure, reduction in future heart failure hospitalizations if they were on an SGLT2 inhibitor versus placebo uh, in those that had diabetes. Uh, but any other thoughts about medical therapies in general to prevent heart failure? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, uh, you, you, you're right on the mark. Uh, uh, statin therapy in high-risk patients is associated with prevention of heart failure. So anything that can prevent ischemic events, uh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, I think that if you were to sort of pound for pound, look at the, the best uh, benefit, the best thing that you can do, uh, literally, uh, uh, maybe a little bit of hyperbole, but the best thing you can do globally for the world is to control blood pressure. By far, the best option to prevent heart failure and other cardiovascular events is to control blood pressure. And again, we are talking about uh, a reduction in heart failure development by 50% relative risk reduction, reduction in LVH by 50%. I mean, this is really unbelievably remarkable. Uh, there were all of these notions that, you know, with age, the blood pressure goes up and that's part of aging and, you know, older patients cannot tolerate blood pressure lowering. I mean, the HIVET trial in people who are octogenarians, you know, uh, 80 years plus, uh, and even the blood pressure was not perfectly controlled to begin with. You know, we went from like the 160s to like the 150s and yet 50% reduction in, in, in heart failure. Uh, a sprint trial, again, a positive trial. Well, what made it a positive trial? Again, reduction in heart failure. So blood pressure control by far uh, the number one thing. And then, uh, uh, so, but the blood pressure control is, is, is for, for every hypertensive person, diabetes or no diabetes. Now, SGLT2 inhibitor is just a fascinating, remarkable story for heart failure prevention in type 2 diabetes. If you look at the four or five different trials that are out there, uh, there are different results, right? I mean, the, the risk factor, the, their, their side effect profile differs, their impact on mortality differs, their impact on, on MACE events differ. But when it comes to heart failure, every single trial with every single SGLT2 inhibitor in patients with type 2 diabetes, with or without history of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, 
have not only prevented and reduced the risk for heart failure, even the magnitude of the risk is remarkably consistent between say 27 to 35%, give or take say 30% relative risk reduction across the trial. So regardless of the other risk factors, uh, regardless of baseline therapy, type two diabetes, you give SGLT2 inhibitors, you will prevent heart failure and you will do a lot of good to the patients. And by the way, all our guidelines, whether they are endocrine guidelines or cardiovascular guidelines uh, are, are recommending that as well. Yeah, that's a beautiful summary of the data. And I, I think you're right. There's a lot of excitement in general in this area. And in particular, the SGLT2 inhibitors have, have prompted a lot of excitement. And along those lines, I guess we've got to wrap up this particular podcast, but just for the audience, uh, stay tuned for the next in the series where we're going to talk more about heart failure in patients with diabetes and get into some of the actual data uh, with a particular focus on SGLT2 inhibitors, which have been such a large advance, both in the management of heart failure, the management of diabetes, and certainly in patients that lie in that intersection, the very large number of patients that lie in that intersection. Well, thank you so much for listening and make sure to tune in for the next episode. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash heart failure three. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services.